0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Emily Dickinson was a gardener. She was also an iconic poet. And this week, we enjoy a conversation with garden writer Marta McDowell to hear more about how the two callings intermingled in the life of Emily Dickinson. Welcome, Marta.
1: I'm so happy to be back, Jennifer.
0: I am so happy to have you. I will note that this makes you the all-time most interviewed person on Cultivating Place, Marta. So we should have like a drum roll. Yay. Happy to have Marta back. So – I have given you a little bit of an introduction, but remind listeners and tell new listeners, of whom there are a great many, a little bit about your own current practice in what you do as a writer, what you do as a gardener. Of course. Well, I consider
1: myself a garden writer, and really, I do a lot of things that you can append the word garden to, (laughs) so... I teach about gardening. I lecture about gardening. I do some consulting on gardening. And I very much garden myself as well.
0: And tell us just a tiny bit about your current garden. And partly why I want you to describe this for listeners is that it bears the beautiful traces and threads and clues of almost all the books you have worked on, which I think you like to describe as being at the sort of intersection of the pen and the trowel.
1: Yes. So the reason my garden is overcrowded is that I, <laughs> you know, I just definitely read too much. And so when I read about a an author who likes to garden, I want to grow what they grew it it's like a little link through time as if i could reach out my fingers and touch them in a way that is not the printed page which you know we so often encounter a writer through the printed page but actually through this medium of a plant
0: yeah yeah Give us an illustration of how this has worked for you. So, and I say this again to just illustrate this wonderful crossover that you include in all the books that I have read of yours, which is sort of how to have a garden like this person would have had a garden. And this was true in the Laura Ingalls Wilder book. And this is definitely true in the Emily Dickinson book. And I believe it was true in terms of at least plant lists in all the president's gardens as well.
1: Yes, I seem to like to count things, so I always do include (laughs) a very long plant list. It must be some, like, personality type. But my garden is, well, let's see, it's a garden of about a half an acre. It is in a suburban neighborhood. My house is not new. It was built in 1929, which means it's approaching 100 years old, Uh, It sits on the front of the property, so in the front I have only uh, things that aren't lawn. (laughs) In the back I have a tiny so-called lawn, although most people who, who look at it probably wouldn't call it that. And I have many trees, my one little patch of sun, I have flowers and herbs. And then I have a a woodland garden in the back. And I think that's the one, interestingly, that Emily Dickinson has influenced the most because she did do a lot of wildflower collecting and wildflower walks. And so in her poems and in her letters, there's so many wildflowers and she's from massachusetts i live in new jersey the you know basically that's a little colder where she is but i can grow most of the things that she would have found mm-hmm. in the woods around amherst Massachusetts. So things like bloodroot, you know, what a what a great Emily Dickinson plant, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, uh, you know, just so many of those little spring ephemerals—the things that bloom in the spring and then completely disappear, uh, at least in my garden, by the end of the summer, and then don't pop up again until next
0: spring. Yeah. So you've been a gardener far longer than you've been a garden writer, and you've been a garden writer for a very long time now. How did one become the other? And tell us about Emily Dickinson's role in that.
1: So the, the minute I had a little patch of earth, which was around, I don't know,
0: let's say 1980,
1: I started to garden and started to just want to grow things. In in a way it didn't matter what the thing was. I, I just really discovered this connection to the soil. And Emily Dickinson happened entirely by accident. It was when I was in a completely different life. I was I had a job. In corporate America, I would go on these trips from, the, you know, the head office in New Jersey and go out to visit insurance agencies in this case. And um, I was going across Massachusetts visiting agencies and I had a spare afternoon and I, I literally pulled off into a high rest area and stared at the brochure rack. Can you picture that?
0: (laughs) Yes, I can.
1: Right. And so there was the thing for the Emily Dickinson Museum. And I thought, oh, I had studied Emily Dickinson. You know, let me go up to the museum. And so I called, I'm sure, on the payphone, and said, can I still make it? And she said, yes, yes, come. And I found out that day that Emily Dickinson had been a gardener. And this door opened for me. I mean, I suppose it was say poetry. It was like the, you know, two roads diverged in the yellow wood. Right, right, right. And so I just, I absolutely became obsessed with Emily Dickinson and her gardening interests. And so that was around 1998. Uh, two years later, I. I left my corporate job. I published an article about Emily Dickinson. You know, I just, I took another track. I started studying gardening, you know, more seriously and, you know, kind of building up, I don't know. And then, you know, I published a book in 2005. In 2010, I worked with the New York Botanical Garden on a big show. You know, you would think I had planned it. Right. But I didn't.
0: And it maybe just it, happened. It just happened, and somehow the the universe, the collective consciousness, the the seeds dormant in your own soul uh, found you, took you, and grew you along this path. And it was, uh, it has taken several kind of guises since then, Uh, but Emily Dickinson was definitely the start. And and when you say you published a book in 2005, that was your first book on Emily Dickinson, the first edition of this book. Is that correct? Yes. And it
1: was my first book about gardening.
0: And the same, likewise with the big exhibit at the New York Botanic Gardens, that was all a sort of botanic garden exhibition about Emily Dickinson, her gardening life, and her gardening motivation as well, correct?
1: Yes, and I should say, you know, this is the value of going to a museum, right? You know, it's like you may not think anything in particular about a museum, but, you know, it really, something can touch you. And, and I've stayed involved with the museum really from the start. So that's been a continuous thread.
0: And when you say the museum, you are specifically referring to the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst.
1: That's right. Yeah. So you know, they've been lovely to work with through the years on various programs and I work in the gardens and you know, it's right. it's it's really been great.
0: So I'm going to – I definitely want to get to that. I want to hear about your gardener-in-residence experience, which I think is just so wonderful and evocative and inspiring to, to me and I'm sure many other listeners as even a concept, Marta. But let's go back to that very first article then birthing into a book, the first kind of Iteration of what is now your second edition. Give us just a basic, like, what were you trying to accomplish? What were you trying to document in there so that we have the the context from which to understand how this updated one uh, is, is different and expands on that original heart?
1: So for me, the big surprise was that Emily Dickinson was a gardener. I don't think of her, you know, that never popped into my mind, because the poems that I knew were things like, oh, um, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all along that line of death and immortality. And, and I had this image of someone standing at a bedroom window in a white dress.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that Many people share that, you know, if they know Emily Dickinson, they know of the name. That image would sort of pop into their mind. That and that, you know, sort of pulled back hairstyle that you see in the daguerreotype. And I wanted to say, look, this was a person who had this interest that's totally counter to this idea of this ghostly hermit. Yeah, you know, stuck indoors, you know, and I'm not saying that she wasn't reclusive because she was and that she, she didn't go out in society in her later years. That's all true. But despite that, she still gardened. So, you know, she got outside anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to, um, And I think this is a great time to do it before we get into the details of who she was as a gardener and what we know about that and and some of the more current research uh, and interpretive materials being um, put out into the world about this. But why does this matter, Marta? And I I think it's it's actually really fascinating. Like why is it important at a a variety of levels that we upend this myth of this – incredible poet and what inspired her, how she took care of herself, what she found valuable in the world. Why is it important that we change that from the myth that was created early on, almost as a sales pitch, and what is actually true about her?
1: To me, it's what are the sources of creativity? Now, you can Still, you can appreciate Emily Dickinson, you can study Emily Dickinson entirely without knowing that she was a gardener. I don't wanna take away from her creative genius as it stands alone. But, you know, just as when you find out, I don't know, I'm gonna pick it, like that Beethoven was deaf, right? It sort of puts it in a different context and you go, oh, you know, so there's someone who had this you know terrible disability and you know could still be this genius in mm-hmm. musical composition. Mm-hmm. So you know it's that Emily Dickinson had various sources f- for her creative output. and so the garden was a, a source for her, but it also was a different outlet, right? It was a different way she was expressing herself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the the vastness of her genius was she could take these sort of everyday things and distill them into something that speaks, can speak to all of us. Yeah.
0: And I, I was thinking about this over the weekend in preparation for our conversation today. And one of the things that occurred to me is that by by providing this real-life woman with a more three-dimensional persona in the common understanding and the current understanding, we actually – we add a little bit of fresh air and health and three-dimensionality to all of the people we might consider creative or artistic or or talented and that to know that she was – you know, actually quite a happy and um, interrelated person with her family and with her friends through letters, through the garden, through plants, food, um, and community, you add this sense that creativity can come with great happiness and health as well, not – This sort of, again, mythic idea, and and I'm not to say that she wasn't sad, and and as you note, her her neuroses in her later years were very real, but they almost never didn't include this very soothing, grounding, and inspirational relationship with plants that she had.
1: Absolutely. And and some of, you know, her networking, if you will, there's a a recent... uh, Dickinson scholar named Marta Horner that that published this book called *The Networked Recluse*, right? So her networking also included plants and flowers. So she sent pressed flowers to people. She made nosegays and and left them for people. Uh, there is a an author that I'm doing some work on now named Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden. Yeah. She had lunch at Emily Dickinson's brother's home who lived next door. And she recounts in her diary that she received this unusual poem, we don't know what the poem was, from my host sister on a bed of heartsies, which were little pansies. Oh. You know, it's just kind of, it, it grabs my heartstrings yeah. that, that this was all part of it. And I guess, you know, I should really like read a poem because we've been talking about Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And and so I, I picked this one for you because it includes your name. And because it has this, this sense of, I don't know, like the ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes like this. I held a jewel in my fingers and went to sleep. The day was warm and the winds were prosy. I said, twill keep. I woke and chid my honest fingers. The gem was gone. And now an amethyst remembrance is all I own.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Marta McDowell is a writer and gardener living in New Jersey. She's always been interested in writers who garden and gardeners who write. Her first book, and the one that pulled Marta fully into the field of garden writing, was Emily Dickinson's Gardens, a celebration of a poet and a gardener, published in 2004. We're speaking this week with Marta to hear more about her updated book on the topic of The Beloved Poet. Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet, published by Timber Press. We'll be right back after a break for more. The literacy of gardening never fails to amaze me. And the way that Marta McDowell plums these depths is likewise inspirational. I am honored to be in conversation in person with both Marta McDowell and another gardening Shiro, Margaret Roach, on the evening of March 19th at Oblong Books in Salisbury, Connecticut, as part of their White Heart Speaker Series. Marta and Margaret and I will be discussing the gardening lives we lead and why and how this matters in our world at this point in time. Marta and Margaret are both profiled in my book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants, and I could not be more thrilled to be together with them in person. For more information on this event, which I'm hoping many of you will attend, make sure to check out the events tab at cultivatingplace.com. Now, back to our conversation with Marta about Emily Dickinson and the artistic literacy of this beloved gardening poet. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Gardener and writer Marta McDowell's newest book is Emily Dickinson's gardening life, the plants and places that inspired the iconic poet. Marta, whose previous books include Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life and All the President's Gardens, is a writer who deftly contextualizes the importance of gardening into the lives of prominent people whom we know better for something else, like being a poet or a president. We're back now to hear more about the importance of plants and gardens to one of the world's favorite poets, Emily Dickinson.
1: To me, this poem is she, it's on two levels. And again, this is why I think it helps to understand that she was a gardener and she worked with plants. I held a jewel in my fingers. So, you know, a jewel is a stone, but I think she's talking about a couple of other things. She's holding a flower Maybe a, a, you know, a flower that she's picked and, you know, she dozes off and she goes, oh, it'll keep. But it also could be, I had this like little poem in my mind.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. And I
1: forgot, and I didn't write it down. Right. And then I woke up and I was really mad because it was gone. And now all I have is this very jewel-like remembrance, this amethyst remembrance is all I own. Yeah.
0: And it's funny because when, when I read the poem, and I, I forget which season it is, but we'll get into the structure of the book in a second, um, I definitely thought of, you know, being out in the garden and uh, picking some flowers or, or even maybe inadvertently knocking a flower off of its stalk and holding it in my hand while I finish my task before I can get it inside to put it in water and or then, you know, forgetting it. Whether I doze off is unlikely, but uh, I could have left it on you know, a side table while I was doing something, switching the hose, and then I forget it's there and, and it's gone. And that speaking to the ephemeral of both creativity and our, our living plant life and any moment in time was just really powerful to me and very visual as well as intellectual when I read it.
1: So you have this poet. She definitely tends to walk around with an envelope and a pencil because in the archives at Amherst College, they have all of these fragments and they're little pieces of paper. Uh, Sometimes they're things like chocolate wrappers or envelopes that she has opened up so that she can, I remember my mother doing this, you know, no piece of paper was ever thrown out in our household uh, well before recycling. But, you know, she would use up every little bit because paper was precious. And, and Dickinson would have something with her when she was maybe outside or working around the house and, and she would, you know, sort of scratch things down so she wouldn't lose them right but it you know you never can do that all of the time uh-uh. and so i feel like this poem sort of captures that
0: yeah yeah so between the first book that came out in 2005 and in this book you've um you've you've updated a couple of things in the book uh, trying to recount and bring to life how she gardened throughout the seasons, how she gardened throughout the her life, and what we know about those. Will you describe the arc of the book? And then we'll get into some of the details of what we do know and how much we've actually learned based on archaeology and found papers and the work of the museum and other scholars.
1: So the book is structured around both her
0: life, and the
1: arc of a year. So I try to do my best to marry those two and talk about you know her early years along with spring. And you know, as she gets older, we move into summer, and then, you know, she she is fully an adult and middle age in autumn and then the end of her life in winter. And I took out a lot of things. Interesting. From the first book, I had a lot of sort of garden hints and little kind of sidebars. And I just went through and pruned. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I pruned and pruned to make room for new material. And you know, I really wanted to to tell people about going to the museum, about how to plant a garden. If you want a poet's garden, uh, what you can plant, what you might need to do, and just connect all of those things to Emily Dickinson to try to make it alive for people.
0: Yeah. So... Tell us about the research that has taken place between the first time you wrote the book and now, and some of the different resources whereby we know what her gardening life was. So we're lucky,
1: you know, we and me, I'm lucky because people saved her letters Letters she received all went up in smoke. Literally, her sister burned them after her death at Emily Dickinson's request. But people seem to have saved the letters they got from her. If you have a chance to read them, I have a lot of excerpts in them, but they're they're wonderful in their entirety. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, if I had one wish, it would be, I wish I could be a correspondent with Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Uh, her letters, you know, like I would say, oh, you know, it got really cold, so I brought my plants in in a hurry. You know, what she says is the plants went to camp last night. You know, it's like, oh, you know, what a beautiful way to say it. The plants went into camp last night. Their tender armor insufficient for the crafty knights you know, this is what I mean, she just, she had this way with language to take the most every day and make it just wonderful. So anyway, so there are her letters, and then these poems, almost 1800 poems. And so that's a wonderful source. Then you start to look for anything that is reasonably primary. In other words, people who were eyewitnesses to her garden, did they write anything down? And so, you know, you're always desperate to try to find that. Um, You know, I've scoured local papers and, you know, just anything I could think of. Her sister-in-law wrote some memoirs. You know, what what were they planting? Where did they get the plants from? Mm -hmm. Um, And... And that it's it's like a detective story for me, you know, anytime I can make a connection or there's a little satisfying click, I feel like, you know, I don't know, like, I don't I've discovered something so wonderful.
0: Right, right. Oh, there's a new clue or there's a new piece to this (laughs) kind of patchwork quilt of of plants and her and her life and beauty and the seasons. It's it's really pretty it's pretty remarkable. Will you describe for listeners some of the documented plants in her herbarium and then in the pressed flower, either, you know, saved evidence or noted, you know, like this is attached inside, whether or not we still have the plant or not?
1: Okay, so let's let me back up for just a second and say a a herbarium is yeah. a collection of pressed plants and in Emily Dickinson's case it was put into a a purpose-made album and it's you know it's got leather covers and 66 pages and she collects hundreds of specimens of flowers that she presses either, I don't know, did she have a flower press or did she do it in books? I think it's much more likely that she did them in books. And then she glues them with these little tiny strips of paper onto the page, arranging them the way someone might arrange a scrapbook. So they're very, they're visually beautiful. And you can, you can look at all of these online, courtesy mm-hmm. of Harvard's Houghton Library. And so imagine these 66 pages and all of these different plants. Things like lady slipper orchids, you know, which how many people get to see those, you know, in person? Right. right. Uh, um, things like little, you know, sort of f- fungusy like saprophytes, but also plenty of violets and pansies and lilacs and, you know, things that would grow in the garden as well. So she has this collection. She clearly continues, you know, really for most of her life. But primarily, I think, does it as a, you know, a teen, maybe into her twenties. And yet, she's also pressing flowers and mailing them. So we, there's one in the Boston Public Library collection. It's a wonderful um, arrangement of big hybrid pansies. You know, Mm. like the big pansies you might plant in the spring. Uh, We know that she enclosed roses uh, in certain letters. Of course, sadly, a lot of the letters that had pressed flowers, the flowers get tossed out. So you don't really know what they were. And then, you know, from then on, you just kind of go by what's in the letters and poems. But again, you know, it's you name a plant, I'll go, oh, yeah, Emily Dickinson at least knew about it or she definitely grew it in her garden. Hyacinths, daffodils, again, lots of roses, lots of primroses, old-fashioned flowers, like stalks, you know, that might be less common now, but were very common in the day. Loved geraniums, grew nasturtiums. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so from the, the herbarium was a from from everything I have read from the book and uh, a conversation in a different episode a couple years back with the, the museum, the herbarium was not just an aesthetic scrapbook, but it was a tool of science she was learning at school at i think the amherst academy or was that before the amherst academy
1: no definitely starting at amherst academy okay. it was a sort of junior high school high school it was coeducational and then going on to mount holyoke which she attended for a year
0: yeah and so this was this was absolutely a scientific herbarium to some extent um With, you know, real names of the plants as she knew them at the time, although they are arranged not by genera or collected location or, but by her aesthetic and space, which, you know, kind of choices.
1: Yes. And, and interestingly, her poems, she also, much later in life, we think, gathered them up and sewed them into little books. Called? Called fascicles. Although she didn't use that term. So as much as I love the fact that fascicle is a term that's used in botany for things like, oh, when like pine needles are in a bunch, that's a fascicle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's what scholars call this collection of pages. And again, this was a hand-bound book. She didn't put covers on them, but she did collect her poems written out and put them in a certain order, right? So yeah. the order would be important as well. And people still study that, you know, what was the order that these came in, Right. just as ordering these plants were important. And just as, you know, poetry is the ordering of words in a certain structure, And, you know, there are just so many layers, because she does sometimes call her poems flowers, and she sometimes uses the word bouquet, and you know she means a bunch of poems or a bunch of words. Right. In addition to, yes, also meaning a bouquet.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Following up on new research and her own experience as gardener in residence at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts, in 2019, writer and gardener Marta McDowell updated her first book on Emily Dickinson's gardens with her newest book, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet. We'll be right back after a break for more with Marta. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. The sources of creativity and how our gardens are among the sources for this in our lives. This concept recurs over and over in this conversation with Marta, and it reminds me how much artistry the garden offers out to us and inspires in each of us. I am not a dancer or a singer or a painter or a designer or a poet or even a cook, but the garden with her seasonally shifting colors and tastes, her motion, her bird and bee song, her offering out of complex ideas in tiny, encapsulated, imagistic vignettes. For instance, the pure white wingspan of the first snowdrop that opened in the garden this month. Who among us, no matter how plodding or homely or clumsy we may be or feel, who among us does not feel the artistry of the universe as theirs in the garden? that's worth enjoying a moment of grace and gratitude for this first month of 2020. Now back to our conversation with Marta McDowell and her newest exploration of creativity, literacy, and plants. Emily Dickinson's gardening life, the plants and places that inspired the iconic poet and us. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back now with Marta McDowell, speaking to us about the research behind Emily Dickinson's gardening life. As we come back, Marta shares more about Emily Dickinson's actual garden, preserved in part at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Massachusetts.
1: So the garden on her property, imagine... A big brick house. It's painted a sort of yellowish, light yellow color. And it's a fairly formal looking house. It's up on a hill. It's on Main Street. And the property is big. There's three acres on one side of the road. That's got both her home and then the home next door that her father built for. Uh, her brother Austin and his wife. And then across the street, there was about a 10-acre meadow that the Dickinsons owned. So she's looking out to this real meadowy area that they would have hayed, but, you know, it would have grown up in the summer. And people, you know, neighbors said it was just full of birds and bees and butterflies. So, you know, full of pollinators. Uh, The house had a little conservatory that was on the southeast corner. And the garden itself went down a kind of gentle slope. There was a big flower garden. And then beyond that, a big vegetable garden and an orchard. Now, I will say Emily Dickinson probably did not tend the vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) She she mentions them a time or two, but it wasn't really a woman's pursuit in their social class. And I will say, you know, the Dickinsons had help. They had, uh, you know, they had household help, they had help outdoors as well. So that also gave her time to pursue her poetry. If you want to know more about the help, there's this wonderful book by a, also a Californian. Her name is Aoife Murray, and the book is called Maid, M-A-I-D, as Muse. And it's all about sort of the household help and how they influenced Dickinson both in her output and her language. So fascinating oh, book. Fascinating. Anyway, okay. off the track. But that was the, the garden, and there was also a big barn, and it was a barn with livestock. So, you know, the livestock would have produced... Great fertilizer, you know, a lot of well-composted manure mm-hmm. and would have probably eaten all the garden and kitchen refuse, so no need for a composter there. And, uh, you know, would have also, there would have been a certain earthiness about the property. Mm-hmm. It was the farm, basically.
0: Yeah. And the years, again, remind us of the her life dates, most of which were spent in this house on this property. Uh, there were a few years within the same town, but still in this region.
1: Yes. Emily Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886. She died when she was 55 years old. Uh, she spent all but 15 years in what is now the Emily Dickinson Museum in a house that was called the Homestead. Her grandfather built it. Uh, For 15 years, they lived essentially around the corner, about maybe a half a mile, quarter mile, half mile away, uh, in another uh, house that is no longer there. Uh, But basically, she wrote, I'm going to say, almost all her poetry while she lived at the, what is now the the museum in the homestead. Yeah,
0: And some of the they've done quite a bit of archaeological work there on site because some was renovated at a certain point when the house went out of her family and before it became a museum.
1: Yes. So the conservatory, which is this little glassed-in room, uh, it was taken off in 1917. So built in 1855, you know, it was probably falling down by then, and, and they removed it. Uh, I will say in good Yankee fashion, they saved most of the parts. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2017, uh, when they unveiled the reconstructed conservatory, it actually, a lot of the pieces were able to be reassembled after a good amount of archaeology was done. Mm -hmm. And they found, you know, the original footings and... uh, you know we're we're reassured about the placement of it. Uh, they've been doing a lot of archaeology over the years. They uh, partner with the University of Massachusetts uh, in Amherst that has a, an archaeology team and an archaeology school. And so basically, any summer you go up there, you'll find a dig uh, which people can volunteer for. It's a lot of fun, and you realize why. Most archeologists start out when they're college age (laughs) because it's really tough on the knees, but they found things like the corner of the barn. So now they know exactly where the barn was located. They know that the garden path is where it was originally. So we've been able to establish that. And we keep waiting because we know from descriptions that there were things like a summer house you know, a summer house being like a, a gazebo, you know, a kind of open structure with a roof uh, that they trellised roses on. And I don't know where it was. Unfortunately, there are no photographs mm. of the, the garden at the time, um, at least nothing that surfaced. So there's still always hope that there's something in somebody's trunk that will, <laughs> surface. That will pop up. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And... They know through some carbon dating of remains in the soil, like where shrubs were, where the lilacs were, where the flower borders were. Is this right?
1: Well, we're hoping. So they're doing that analysis at the University of Pennsylvania – Uh, They found some things like they found grape seeds. We did know that they grew grapes. So, you know, we keep hoping for more specifics, and some of it is just waiting for that analysis to get done. So, still a lot of
0: work going on. Right. Okay. So, describe the orchard because I think that's one of the places they've had some really good success in restoring what they believe to have been original.
1: Yes. So, uh, over the past, I'm going to say five years, there has been some extensive work on trying to put an orchard back onto the Dickinson property. Uh, there is a lovely orchardist who comes and you know prunes these young trees and tries to get them to bear. It's not in the same place because there is a wonderful, huge white oak tree that we know that Emily Dickinson's brother planted that's now shading a good part of that slope Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the eastern side of the house. Mm -hmm. So that's taken, you know, a lot of care is taken around that tree. So the orchard is sort of down in the corner uh, where there's more sun, but they have gotten one of the trees to produce uh, an old tree that had just hadn't borne apples for years, but then once it was properly pruned, it bore a kind of apple called a sweeting, which is an heirloom apple. And we do know that there were sweeting apples on the property. In fact, Emily Dickinson writes to a friend, the golden sweets are from grandfather's tree. Mm. So, boy, how wonderful is that, right?
0: Right, (laughs) right, right. And so part of how you know all of this information is not just research, but you served as gardener in residence. Tell us about what what this was, how it came to be, if you're still doing it, and what being a gardener in residence is, Marta.
1: Yes. Well, I have a confession to make, and that is – I sort of made it up.
0: And it's sort of perfect.
1: It's sort of perfect. So (laughs) I want you to picture it's about, I guess it's the summer of 2017. And I'm at a meeting. There is an annual meeting of something called the Emily Dickinson International Society. This is a group of scholars and Dickinson lovers they put out a scholarly journal and they organize conferences and scholarship on dickinson so that year it was in amherst and uh, jane wald who's the executive director of the museum gets up and you know sort of gives a report and talks about their poet in residence you know that they have someone who is going to be the poet in residence and after this meeting i said jane can we have lunch and I said, "Would you consider a gardener in residence?" Uh, now, I will say, you know, Massachusetts from New Jersey, it's a four-hour drive on a good day, so I, I can't commute. But and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be up there the whole summer. But I said, you know, I'll come, let's say, once a month, and I'll work in exchange for some kind of accommodation. So we worked that out. And uh, I did that in 2018. So I was up there much more frequently than my normal, which would be to go up once or twice a year. I, I almost, I think every year, oh, for <laughs> for a really long time, I've been going up in June and we have a garden kind of weekend where we get volunteers and we dig and we try to shape the place up. Uh, because like most museums, the, the Major part of the resources go into the houses, which need a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And so there's not as much resource to put into the garden. Uh, but this let me see the garden in a new way through the entire growing season from, you know, seeing the very early bulbs in spring all the way to planting more bulbs in the fall and I can't recommend too much the idea of creating kind of internships for yourself if you are in the position to do it because it's a wonderful way to learn by doing Mm -hmm. and you know college students do it so why can't I just because I am in my sixth decade right
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and what I love also about this, Marta, is that the term gardener in residence puts the act of gardening in what I would consider its rightful place as an expression of, of art, of literacy, of cultural values, and of scientific research and progression,
1: Yes, and, you know, it's it's often viewed as something like ha- housework, mm-hmm. but really it is a much more creative pursuit. And, you know, it's allowed me to really connect with some of the the regular kind of volunteers around the museum and some of the docents will come out and help me. And so we do things like when we plant something, Important, a new rose, a clematis vine, bulbs. We read it a poem.
0: (laughs) Nice,
1: nice. (laughs) And so that marks the event. Whether it helps them actually grow, I'm not sure. But you know, I have my I have my hopes.
0: I feel pretty sure it does. And so with that, I would love to end by having you pick another one or two poems to share with us.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to read my favorite, and it's short. And, and that is because it is one of the poems that I do think is a little like a recipe, and yet it's a recipe with a twist, and it goes like this. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. One clover and a bee and reverie the reverie alone will do if bees are few. Hmm. So I do love that one. And then I'm going to read an autumn poem because I feel that it is, again, one of these examples where Emily Dickinson's poems are generally a fairly simple structure. People have made the analogy of they're like a a hymn tune, but it's a structure that she turns on its head in the same way that, you know, yes, you know, Schubert used the sonata form, but he made it into something spectacular, just, you know, even though it's the structure. So it goes like this. The name of it is autumn. The hue of it is blood. An artery upon the hill a vein along the road great globules in the alleys and oh the shower of stain when winds upset the basin and spill the scarlet rain it sprinkles bonnets far below it gathers ruddy pools then eddies like a rose away upon vermilion wheels
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you and spend this time in the company of Emily Dickinson's Words and Garden.
1: Well, as always, Jennifer, it goes so fast.
0: Writer and gardener Marta McDowell published Emily Dickinson's Gardens, a celebration of a poet and a gardener in 2004. In 2019, following up on new research and her own experience as gardener in residence at the Emily Dickinson Museum, Marta updated her original work with this, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet, which is now available from Timber Press. Join us again next week when we are joined by Erin Carter and Georgia Faye Hursty of Frailty Myths, based in Oakland, California. Frailty Myths' work is centered on reimagining femininity and building power in ways that allow you and all of us to feel our inner power, grow our confidence, and change the world. The three of us explore how this work intersects with the garden world and some of our mythologies to be found there, as well as why upending these myths is good growth for us all. Join us. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Definitely take a look at some of Marta's wonderful images from Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life over at CultivatingPlace.com this week. They're powerful fuel for sparking your own creativity in and with your gardening life. Good January work for heart and soul. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fidler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.